If you would join me in Matthew chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 32. And uh, the title of my sermon this morning is Jesus Binds the Strong Man. And the uh, key words for worshipers in training or anyone are Messiah, Kingdom, and Pharisee. Messiah, Kingdom, and Pharisee. I am a big fan of the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Um, But there are some today in the church that are telling us that we need to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. In other words, most everything in the Old Testament does not apply to the New Testament or to Christianity today. That's for a time long ago. Now, if that sounds weird or strange or wrong, then good, because it is. It's quite the opposite, actually. The reality is that the Old Testament is just as much God's Word as the New Testament. And not only that, but it gives the context that we need to understand much, if not most, of the New Testament. The New Testament draws extensively from the Old for its content. And now the Old Testament is not some trailer hanging on to the New Testament, but the very frame and chassis of the vehicle. It's what supports the structure. So with that as a brief introduction, hopefully to that point, uh, this brings us now to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. It can be said, some people have said, that the theme, central theme of Matthew's Gospel is one of fulfillment. Fulfillment of what? Of Old Testament prophecies. We're not people, again, of the New Testament only, but we follow a Jewish Messiah. And the New Covenant is a fulfillment of all the promises that came before it. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is, Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. So it seems that Matthew pulls from the Old Testament ways that the other synoptic Gospels don't, that being Mark and Luke. Uh, John is comparatively different or distinct. He takes a little different angle. So Matthew has long been regarded as the most Jewish Gospel due to its numerous hooks and uh, looking back to the Old Testament, bringing images and themes from the Old Testament into the book of Matthew, especially from the book of Exodus. So the one main theme I want us to think about this morning as we're reading through our text, an Old Testament theme that we see over and over is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messianic King, and he brought his kingdom on earth as planned from eternity past. So Jesus fulfilled everything that was biblically expected of the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew goes to great lengths, picking up on Jewish thought, to show that the kingdom of the Messiah has arrived. He starts off in the beginning of the book by showing us that Jesus is David's greater son, that he has, through adoption by Joseph, the genealogical right to the royal throne, but without a sinful nature. He's the son of Joseph, and therefore the son of David and Abraham by adoption. The Jews knew, the Jews in Jesus' time knew that the Messiah had to be a son of David. So just by 
as a reminder, I know Pastor Sam, as he's preaching through Acts, the kingdom of God has been somewhat central as we've been going through Acts. But kingdom means rule or reign. God's kingdom means God's rule or reign. This is a constant theme in the Old Testament, God's rule and sovereignty from Genesis through Malachi. Now, the Jewish believer, this is important, the Jewish believer, while believing that God was eternally sovereign, still understood that all was not right as God would have it in the world and hoped for a time to come when God's rule would be more fully and openly implemented and acknowledged among the people of all the earth. Think of Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. So let's look at Matthew 12, verses 22-32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, so I have five main points I want to uh, show you this morning from this text. Really four, but the fourth one has two parts. So it's either four A and B or five parts. The first one is in verse t- 22. Jesus' authority over demonic oppression. So we'll see that in verse 22. The second thing is verse 23. We're going to see the crowd's reaction to what Jesus did. In verse 24, the third thing we're going to see is the Pharisees' reaction. And then in uh, points 4 and 5, the first part is verse 25 through 29. We're going to see Jesus' withering response to the Pharisees. And then the second part of his response, we're going to see that it reveals the Pharisees' choice to take sides against Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I know that's a long long one. It's it's going to reveal the Pharisees' choice to take sides against Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first point, Jesus' authority over demonic oppression. Verse 22 said, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, earlier in chapter 12, the Pharisees start questioning and accusing Jesus of wrongdoing, specifically around unlawful Sabbath activities. 
activities on the Sabbath day. He, they were, he and his disciples were plucking grain in a field to eat on the Sabbath. And Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees' contempt and jealousy toward Jesus has been somewhat growing to the point in verse 14 of chapter 12, it says that they want to destroy him. This comes to a head here in our text today. So do not be deceived, friends. The kingdom of man and the evil one seeks to destroy the kingdom of God. Regardless of what they know about the future, their hatred and jealousy knows no end. So at this point in his ministry, Jesus was was already known as not only a physical healer, but as an exorcist as well. You can think of the meme. The meme, yeah, I'm somewhat of an exorcist myself. Um, Demon exorcisms are seen in chapters 4, 8, 10, and we'll see it again in 15 and 17. This is a known activity of Jesus, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But here in verse 22, we see that Jesus healed a man who was oppressed, or that word means under the power of a demon or or an evil spirit, an unclean spirit. And the effects of this oppression by the Spirit is that he cannot see or speak. A very sad condition, for sure. And this is it. This is all this, these verses really say about this, this exorcism that Jesus did. So it's not really the main thrust of the passage. But um, while there's a lot we could say about this topic of demon oppression, demon possession, exorcism... I just want to point out a few things that I believe the New Testament teaches regarding the uh, subject of demon possession. Five things that the New Testament teaches about this. Number one, it is not true that the New Testament writers ascribed all physical illness and abnormalities to demon possession. For example, Matthew 4 makes a clear distinction between demon possession and those afflicted with various diseases and pain. Some afflicted persons are demon-possessed, blind and dumb, as in our passage today. Others lack the power of sight or speech, but are not demon-possessed. We see that in chapter 15. And there's ver- there are various other passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts that carefully distinguish between diseases caused by demons and diseases not caused by them. Number two, it is not true that demon possession is simply used as another name for insanity. In only two cases of this in the New Testament is the mind definitely affected by the demon possession. Number three, though there is a resemblance, it is not true that demon possession is another name for what we today call multiple personality disorder. Demons are disembodied beings who are able to leave a man and enter a pig, They're always evil, and they are not driven out by psychological treatments applied over longer or shorter periods of time. But they are driven out by the word and power of Christ instantly. And none of this applies to multiple personalities. Number four, demon possession is when a distinct and evil personality, foreign to the person possessed, has taken control over an individual. This evil personality is able to speak through the person possessed and to answer when addressed, sometimes exhibiting great strength and possibly the ability to speak different languages and have knowledge beyond what the host person would know. 
And fifth thing, and lastly, though there are different thoughts on the source of demons or where demons come from, they are ultimately agents of Satan and enemies of Christ and his church. So Jesus cures this man completely and instantly. But the focus of our text seems to be not so much, again, on the actual exorcism and healing, as miraculous and amazing as that is, but the response by the people and the Pharisees seems to be the main point. So let's look, at, let's look at that. Point number two in verse 23, the crowd's reaction. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So this term, son of David, as a title for the Messiah, it's not really an Old Testament thing. There's really no place in the Old Testament that describes this title, son of David, to the Messiah. Now there is some extra-biblical writing. We see it, I think, one time in a pseudepigraphical book, which is a book that is falsely attributed to a certain author. So in this case, it's the Psalms of Solomon. So it's falsely attributed to Solomon. It was written far after Solomon lived. But in that particular uh, extra-biblical uh, book, it does use the term Son of David to refer to the Messiah. But even though that's not really an Old Testament thing, it seems fairly obvious that during Jesus' time on earth, um, the term Son of David has become synonymous with Messiah or the anointed or chosen one. And here the crowd, because of that belief, they go beyond merely being amazed or astonished at seeing Jesus perform this exorcism, but they draw a very specific speculative conclusion by what he did. The people here are beginning to draw ideas about who Jesus is. But why? If it's not in the Old Testament, <coughs> what does exercising demons have to do with the Son of David or the Messiah? And we'll see in just a few verses that uh, Jesus is not necessarily the only person exercising demons during this time. So there was a tradition among the Jews based primarily, again, on Jewish texts outside of the Old Testament that do associate the Son of David who is also the son of Solomon, so the line of David through Solomon, that associates the Messiah with this act of casting out demons based on a belief that Solomon had power over evil spirits. Uh, Some people saw this as a part of the messianic profile, what the Messiah would look like. So the, the interesting thing is the people here do not bat an eye, and they come to this immediate conclusion that in spite of the Pharisees and the religious leaders' very strong denunciations of Jesus, and in spite of the fact that Jesus has shown no inclination whatsoever of becoming a political or military leader, which is what a lot of the Jews thought, they come to the conclusion that maybe this is the um, expected son of David, the Messiah. It's kind of like there are these scales And they're starting to tip more and more in the favor of Jesus as the actual Messiah in the eyes of the people. But as the scales tip, imagine the Pharisees, who we just read about, who are trying to destroy Jesus. And as these scales tip in that direction, they are getting angrier and more desperate every minute. So let's look at point number three, the Pharisees' reaction in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. 
So we see a very different reaction from the Pharisees. In contrast to the positive reaction of the crowd, we see the determined, wicked, and even blasphemous opposition of the Pharisees. Prideful, jealous, and stubborn, and probably scared of losing their positions and reputations that not only puffed up their pride but filled their wallets, their minds were already made up to oppose Jesus no matter what he did. Their minds were already made up. The Pharisees deliberately and probably here publicly counter the crowd's clear but somewhat timid declaration of Christ's Messiahship, not only by contradicting them, but by an extremely offensive attack on the very person of Jesus himself. So shockingly, at least to us, they ascribe Jesus' power to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan himself. Now, not to follow too much of a rabbit trail, uh, which I could do very easily here, but this name, Beelzebul, does not come again from any earlier Jewish writings. But it does suggest a connection to the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal. It could also be derived from the Hebrew Baal-zebul, which means Baal, lord of the height, or lord of the house. There doesn't seem to be a link between the Philistines' god Baal-zebub, which is lord of the flies, that we see in 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 16, though this could be a derogatory take on the aforementioned Baal-zebul, lord of the house. It could be a derogatory term, lord of the flies, from 2 Kings. But lastly, uh, on this, some, some scholars... And, and I tend to tentatively agree, point out that the Z-B-U-L ending, the Zabul ending, is used for both heaven and for the temple, suggesting that Beelzebul is a Hebrew version of the Aramaic Bel Smayen, which is a title for Zeus, the chief Greek god. And so from the Jewish perspective, the chief demon. So just a little interesting side note. But however interesting the connection we can make between Beelzebul and other false gods or evil spirits, the next few verses, Jesus does assume they are referring to Satan. But I want you to note, though, here, that the Pharisees do not deny Jesus' ability to cast out demons at all. And they do not deny that he did that just now. There's no denial of the fact. But since they refuse to admit his power is from the one true God, they are forced to come up with this assault on Jesus. Now, the popular belief at the time was that sorcerers operated through what they called familiar spirits. But to identify that spirit as Satan himself was to raise their charge against Jesus to the most evil level imaginable. So let's see what Jesus had to say in return. This is part four, uh, part one of part four, or uh, item number four. We see... In verses 25 through 29, we see Jesus' withering response, which consisted of a reasoned argument. So verse 25 through 29 um, says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in, in the Pharisees, in response to the Pharisees' uh, response, Jesus lays out a, a very, a very well-thought-out, reasoned argument that the Pharisees are not just wrong, but they are being completely absurd in their argument. His first point is the unreasonable idea that the demon king would attack and defeat his own demonic forces. This would be Satan versus Satan. He would be destroying his own work, sending out his servants, in this case the demons, to work evil in the hearts and lives of men, then through Jesus supplying the very power to expel his own obedient servants. So he would be breaking down his own empire and dividing it against himself. But don't miss the fact here that according to Jesus, Satan is assumed to have a kingdom, which in verse 28 we see is under attack from the kingdom of God. Again, the term kingdom here carries that the normal meaning of to rule. So Satan cannot remain king for long if his forces are divided. Secondly, Jesus says that the Pharisees are being inconsistent in verse 27. So uh, exorcisms, they, they presuppose that there's a hostile supernatural force that can only be countered by a more powerful spiritual authority. During Jesus' time, exorcisms were generally an accepted and approved activity. But the uniqueness of his ministry seems to be the power and authority that, were, that was exhibited in his exorcisms, not to mention the sheer number of them, especially uh, if you include the disciples. So <coughs> there were others, though, besides Jesus and his disciples, who claimed to have the power, this power to expel demons. And we see hints that they were possibly successful in verses like Matthew seven twenty two, which says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But for argument's sake, it doesn't really matter if they were successful or not, though it seems like they were. The point is that friend, the friends and followers of the Pharisees claim to have this same power. And the Pharisees generally accepted that. But, and as their religious teachers and leaders, presumably the Pharisees shared the credit and basked in the glory of these powerful and supernatural acts. So then, how can the Pharisees condemn Jesus for participating in the same activity that they so glowingly approve in others? Jesus says to the Pharisees, let these sons or let these followers judge you. Now, if their sons say the Pharisees are correct here, they condemn themselves for possibly using the same demonic power that Jesus does. But if they say the Pharisees are wrong, they condemn their teachers and vindicate Jesus. Either way, it's an embarrassing outcome for the Pharisees. Thirdly, Jesus said their argument against him conceals and suppresses the truth. The Pharisees are not just factually wrong, but they put forth a wicked, blasphemous suppression of the truth. Think about it. It was the very opposite of the truth because Jesus cast out demons not by an evil spirit, not by Beelzebul, but by the very spirit of the living God. 
The spiritual nature of Jesus' exorcism is being, he's explaining that to them. Jesus' special authority comes from his empowerment by the Spirit of God. But this, this, this showing of the Spirit's power goes beyond the exorcism. And it's a sign of something far greater in scope. It's the, the, the sign of the establishment of God's kingdom in place of Satan's. The very fact that Satan's kingdom is being proven or being proved vulnerable for his servants are being driven out of men's hearts and lives shows that God's kingdom is making its presence felt. At this point in time, the kingdom of God has started the process of gaining the victory over the realm of Satan here on earth. I'll quote R.T. France. He says this, But the coming of God's kingship, which is a cause for joy for those who embrace it, is a threat to those who oppose his will. So it has caught up with the Pharisees, breaking uncomfortably into their cozily controlled world of tradition and turning everything upside down. It is not they, but Jesus as the Messiah who is coming. God's kingship is established, who now represents the true focus of divine authority on earth. God's kingship is already a reality, end quote. So next in verse 29, Jesus used a fairly simple example uh, of a burglar. So a bur- burglar does not simply receive willing help from a strong homeowner. Instead, in order, to get what, in order to get what the burglar wants, he must incapacitate him somehow, in this case, by tying up the homeowner. Then he takes whatever he wants. This recalls, Matthew is probably recalling imagery of Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25, where there Isaiah is symbolizing the rescue of God's people from their oppressors. And that says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. So Jesus' exorcisms, far from being in collusion with Satan, are a direct assault on his possessions. His kingdom is under attack. Now, the strength of Satan as the God of this world is acknowledged here by the Lord Jesus. But now, at long last, he has met his match. Jesus has tied him up, and so is free to take his possessions or release his captives, using Isaiah's terminology. The idea of tying up, though, is not just referring to this exorcism, but it represents the complete superiority of Jesus' authority over that of Satan's. The tying up is what makes Jesus' exorcism unique from all the others, it being an all-out assault on Satan's kingdom versus these little local forays of other exorcists at the time. So the binding of Satan's power will be further strengthened after this by means of Jesus' victory on the cross and in his resurrection, ascension, and coronation as king. Think about how in Luke 10, uh, when Jesus sends uh, the 70, his 70 missionaries out, it says, uh, the fall of Satan as lightning from heaven is recorded in, in uh, connection with the return and report of the 70 missionaries that he sent out. 
So the devil is currently being and will progressively more be deprived of his furniture. That is the souls and bodies of men through the spread of the gospel. First to the Jews, but later to the nations in general. And the last point this morning, uh, number five or four B, is Jesus' response reveals the Pharisees' choice to take sides against him and the Holy Spirit. Verse, verses 30 through 32 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So in this, uh, this battle of kingdoms that we're seeing here, important important thing for us to see is that there are only two sides to this kingdom, as we see in verse 30. There's no neutral observers, no, no one's Switzerland, no one's sitting this one out. There are only two kingdoms, two empires, one with Christ as the head and one with Satan. You, me, Every person in the entire world, we belong to one kingdom or the other. But Jesus says here that the one who belongs to his kingdom, the one who belongs to Christ's kingdom, uh, they help Jesus gather people to be his followers. To be against Christ's kingdom means you are unwilling to follow him and unwilling to help gather people for him. Therefore, you actively leave people to be scattered, shepherdless, Easy prey for Satan, including yourself. And last but not least, uh, verses 31 and 32. Um, you know, when I read these verses, uh, there were two, two questions I wanted to consider. And it's going to be incredibly brief. Um, just incredibly br- brief, unfortunately. But the two questions are, what is the unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about here? And number two, why can we speak against the Son of Man... And not the Holy Spirit. Okay, so for the first, um, what what is the unforgivable sin? I think that context is really king here, uh, especially after verse uh, in the last few verses. We must answer the question based on the context. Uh, the Pharisees' specific charge, remember in verse twenty-four, was attributing the direct and quite obvious work of the Holy Spirit to His ultimate enemy satan and that charge that's a charge is blasphemy this is blasphemy they have made the pharisees here have made a very decisive choice between god and satan and they have chosen the wrong side the side of the ultimate liar the ultimate deceiver the side against their creator in whose image they are made they have chosen the wrong kingdom And short of a complete 180-degree change of heart, they have willingly and, despite being warned, thrown in their lot with the enemy of God. Now, friends, God will forgive anyone of anything, provided they turn to him in faith and repentance. You need to remember that. God will forgive anyone of anything, provided they turn to him in faith and repentance. But these men here have done just the very opposite of that. No repentance, no belief. I'm going to paraphrase R.T. France a little. 
he says that these two verses are meant to be a wake-up call to the prideful and the arrogant, not a boogeyman to frighten those of tender conscience. The second question, I think, to me, is a little harder, but I'll, I'll share what I think is going on here and what makes the most sense to me. So, as I'm reading, anytime we, we read verses about the, the persons of the Trinity, my guiding principle here is that while the Bible does distinguish between the three persons of the Trinity, it does not separate them into different beings, only different persons. So the full truth about who Jesus the man is at this time has not been fully revealed, right? We see even in Matthew 11, um, Jesus is praying and he thanks, he thanks the Father that he's hidden things from people. Um, he has not, his, who he is has not been fully revealed yet. And he says this is the Father's will. So in this sense, I think it would be possible to speak against Jesus the man without being aware that you are speaking against God. This may be an example of acting in ignorance, as Paul writes in Acts 3.17, and also as a recognition of unintentional versus intentional sins, as spelled out in Numbers 15.27-31. But in this specific case... The significance of Jesus' exorcism was plain for everyone to see. This was a very visual, physical miracle. So there could be no excuse for misinterpreting the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing it to Satan. That was clearly a work of the Spirit of God. The people's reaction testifies to that. So, uh, in conclusion, you know, what do we make of this? What do we make of this, this story? My question to you is, what will your response be? What is our response to God's King, to God's Messiah? What about, what about you? Instead of opposing and fighting this kingdom, Jesus, Jesus says, Let's, let people everywhere enter it. Friends, um, don't, don't be caught scattering from God. But let's gather together men, women, and children for his kingdom. Starting with yourself. If you're here this morning and are Christian, you have believed that Jesus is the Son of God and died to pay the penalty for your sins, then then you and I, we need to be gathering. We need to be gathering with Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Christ as your Savior and given your allegiance to him as your king, then why not? What stops you from doing that? Look at the Pharisees. Look at the example here. Do not harden your hearts like these Pharisees did. Jesus says you are either with him or you're against him. There's no other option. So, so come, believe in him. Enter his kingdom by faith. And be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the miracle-working, beloved Son of God. Amen.